From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise. All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. The missing secret files. Sealed police reports reveal Stephen Avery allegedly assaulted another woman and a babysitter. We have world-exclusive legal documents that reveal the making a murderer notorious star was accused of assault by more than one woman. What does that reveal and will it affect his bid for justice? His first attorney is here for an All Rise exclusive interview. Plus, police open an investigation into Casey Kasem's death four years after he's passed amid a drawn-out, knock-em-down and often bizarre battle between his wife and his three adult children. One of the key players is here for an all-rise exclusive interview. Breaking news. The investigation into the death of legendary DJ Casey Kasem has been reopened after his widow, Jeannie Kasem, accused his three adult children of murdering him. This was the subject of an explosive expose on CBS's 48 Hours this past weekend. Let's take a listen to portions of that broadcast. After more than 30 years of marriage, Casey was diagnosed with a debilitating Parkinson's-like disease. It was then, his children say, Jeannie cut off their access to him. Jeannie says his children began a campaign of harassment. We have been stalked, tracked, bullied. The family feud escalated when Carrie says Jeannie put Casey's health at risk by taking him out of a rehab facility. Gene Kaysen pulled my dad out at 2.30 in the morning out of a convalescent center, unhooked his G-tube, unhooked his IV. In June 2014, Casey Kasem died. The family battle went nuclear. Jean killed my father. What she did led to his death. I'm not going to quit. I'm the daughter of a Marine, and what they did was wrong. If someone killed your father, wouldn't you want justice? Take the money. Take it all. I want her in jail. Now, in an All Rise exclusive, Jeannie Kasem joins me on the line for her first interview since the television special. Jeannie, how was it that Casey Kasem, your beloved husband, came to his death? Well, there are a number of factors. First, um, if one remembers, in 2013, the Kasem sisters and their brother Mike uh, filed a fraudulent guardianship of my husband. And what did that do to contribute to his death? Well, uh, in an, they were attempting to seize control of him. And what we have found in court-sealed records, the first stipulation that they were asking the court in 2013 was to withdraw all of his hydration, all of his nutrition, and all of his proactive medical care when he was very much alive. And how they were going about this is with a power of attorney from a UPS store down on Hollywood Boulevard that had been signed in 2007 on Veterans Day and held in secrecy until 2013 when they surfaced. 
Now, this case was the subject of a CBS special on 48 Hours on Saturday night titled The Mysterious Death of Casey Kasem. Now, in that episode, we saw video from that retail store where Casey was signing those documents. Do you know how CBS obtained that video? Let me tell you about that episode uh, that happened down on Hollywood Boulevard. I assure you it was not part of our comprehensive estate plans that we normally do. He was brought down there on Veterans Day with undue influence under various medications, recovering from surgery. He still had the sutures in his head and was clearly out of it. So you are essentially accusing his three children from his first marriage, Kerry, Julie, and Michael, of convincing him to sign over power of attorney against his will. Not only am I accusing them, but I'm accusing Julie's husband from UCLA, Dr. Jamil Abul Hassan. What they did is they had him sign a power of attorney naming only themselves as agents. And you believe that they assigned the power of attorney for what reason? I believe they did it to kill him at the opportune time for money. At the centre of this very ugly spat is Casey's 80 to $100 million estate. Can you tell me the value of the estate, the exact amount that is at the centre of this? Whatever the value is, Dylan, we built that together. We were married for 34 years. Now, you have filed a countersuit against the family who filed a wrongful death lawsuit against you. At the same time, Washington police have reopened the case, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast. Why did police reopen the investigation? And do you believe, in a second part to this question, that the civil lawsuit should be stayed for want of a better phrase, stalled until the homicide investigation is over? Well, I believe the homicide investigation should take priority. And I'm very thankful to the Gig Harbor Police Department for opening the investigation. I know it's at the DA's office in Pierce County with Mark Lindquist, and there's just overwhelming evidence that my investigative team has found in over five years. Can you tell me some of that evidence, Jeannie? Well, for one, when they took him to the hospital on June 1st for a supposed independent medical evaluation, it was all a ruse. It was pre-planned. It was premeditated. And I have all of the evidence of emails and texts to back up how Sam Ingham, who is a PVP attorney for the courts, in Los Angeles, was racketeering with opposing counsel, Carrie Kaysen's attorney, Troy Martin, who is a Scientologist. And I have all of that evidence. And it's very clear and it's very convincing that they wanted to seize physical control of Casey, human traffic him, entrap him in a hospital, chemically restrain him, and kill him. And then immediately after they did that, they started harassing the funeral home and vital records 
in order to get a death certificate so they could file for a $2.1 million life insurance policy. Now, Jeannie, obviously some people would say making accusations against an attorney and tying his religious beliefs, being that he is a Scientologist, to it is perhaps incendiary. What is your reaction to that? I wouldn't say anything that I didn't have evidence or proof of. And all of his emails and text messages were filed in court last week in his public record. And I am telling you now, Dylan, that Carrie Kasem is a Scientologist. Troy Martin is a Scientologist. Their private investigator is a Scientologist. And it's all a big scam. And everything they have done is illegal. What do you accuse the Church of Scientology of? Or do you believe it's individuals whom are connected to the church operating separately? I am not accusing the Church of Scientology of anything. I'm accusing these members. Now, in fairness to them, they have made similar allegations against you, claiming that you disconnected them from their father and even disconnected his feeding tube. How do you react to those claims? That's part of their methodology, to put out a false narrative, to accuse, to lie, to cheat, to steal, do whatever they can to falsely portray someone in order to destroy them. And and let me add something. I never took out his feeding tube. I never took out any intravenous tubing whatsoever. That never happened. Now, for those who watched the 48 Hours episode, they will know that uh, you took your ailing husband to a friend's home in Silverdale, Washington. Why did you take Casey there in 2014? Well, in the first guardianship attempt, uh, which was denied for no good cause and ultimately denied with prejudice, case closed and put to an end on January 14, 2014. Four months later, they came back and attacked again and filed another one, another corrupt guardianship. And so my husband and I spoke after the first guardianship attempt, and we knew clearly what they were trying to do. What I was trying to do was, one, protect my husband. Two, we were seeking peace from all the vitriol and from the media onslaught. And three, we went to a that I have known all my life while he was seeking the attention and the advice of a medical specialist up there in Seattle and ultimately on our way to one of the best clinics in the world in Switzerland. Now, that never happened. It never happened because they took him, they convinced a judge to allow them to take him for a supposed independent medical evaluation, even though his private personal doctor and myself said it would be best if they come to the home so they did not disturb him. Do you think your husband would still be alive today if he was allowed to be treated the way you wanted him to be? Yes, I do, because I have email evidence, I have text messages, and I have evidence of their conspiracy. And he was 
alive and well with me. Just think, Dylan, if they had got a hold of him in 2013, he wouldn't have been alive in 2014. We saw their motives clearly filed in court. I kept him alive, and even after they entrapped him in the hospital and chemically restrained him, when they called me on the evening of June 6, along with our daughter Liberty, and told us that they had already begun the process, we thought that it was a new kind of treatment. We had no idea because we were banned from the hospital. We were not allowed to see him in the hospital. And when we found out what they were doing that evening, I hopped a private plane and got back down in L.A. before the judge and was fighting to reinstate all of his hydration, nutrition, and proactive medical care and won. As all this goes on, Jeannie, it must be said that Casey's body rests in a grave in Oslo, Norway, which many people question in itself as to why you and Liberty decided to have him buried in another country. Can you answer the reasoning behind that? Well, if anyone saw footage on 48 hours of the burial that I gave him, I believe Peter's comment was it was fit for a king, and he's at peace. But why Oslo? It's a beautiful country. It represents peace. In fact, that was one of the countries that we were planning on visiting when he got ill. Do you think Casey would have wanted to be buried in Oslo? Yes, I do. Because Kerry Kasem said in the 48 Hours episode that if she's victorious in the civil lawsuit, one of the first things that she will do is bring his body back to Los Angeles. How do you react to that? Nothing sacred for her. But I want you to know that I think he would have liked to have been buried there. And I have my plot already purchased right next to him. Potentially, there is one way to resolve the war of words, and that would be to exhume his body from Oslo, Norway, and submit it to another autopsy. Would you be in support of that? Dylan, he already had an autopsy. In fact, uh, the forensic pathologist who performed it within 24 hours after them killing him asked for law enforcement intervention. The manner of his death is now listed as undetermined, which is suggestive of a homicide. What have police told you in terms of when they believe they will have a resolution to the case, a determination as to whether there was something nefarious here? What I know is, is that it's already at the DA's office with Mark Lindquist, and that's in Pierce County, Washington. What do you think they will do? Well, they're known for their elder abuse unit, so they may prosecute. And you hope they do? Oh, yes, I do, because I believe that Casey and I and our daughter, Liberty, needs some sense of justice. Jeannie Kasem, thank you very much for joining me on All Rise. Dylan, I would like to add one thing. Sure. Dylan, we were vindicated on the first guardianship attempt, and I believe that we will be vindicated again. All right, Jeannie, thank you very much for joining me on All Rise. Thank you, Dylan. Now, we asked Kerry Kasem if she wanted to join us on the program in an email on Friday before the 48 Hours broadcast, 
she said that she was unavailable and would only be available for an interview at the end of this week. We extended an offer to her to ask her to participate in an interview on Saturday and on Sunday. Today, as of Monday, she is yet to return our request for comment. Okay, coming up next, is the Stephen Avery that you see on Making a Murderer the real Stephen Avery? Or is there something more sinister behind the man who's seeking freedom after the explosive Netflix series aired? We'll have a world-exclusive interview and world-exclusive details next. For those who don't know, Jerry Buting was Stephen Avery's defence lawyer alongside his co-counsel, Dean Strang. The pair catapulted into notoriety as a result of Netflix making a murderer, which has now premiered its second season on the cable network. Now, this was a tricky case, and ultimately Strang and Buting lost. Now, Avery was convicted of Teresa Halbach's murder in 2007 and sentenced to life in prison without parole, although he continues to maintain his innocence. Now, this legal duo has found themselves in the news after Stephen Avery hired a new lawyer, a defence counsel by the name of Kathleen Zellner, who stated and has made very public that her intention on appeal for Stephen Avery is to take apart his initial defence. So joining me on the line to review what Stephen Avery's current lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, is saying about him is Jerry Booting himself. Jerry, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. So obviously in situations like this, and it's not uncommon when a case goes to appeal, that a new defence counsel will attempt to try and place blame on previous counsel. In this instance, the new defence counsel, Kathleen Zellner, is saying that Stephen Avery's defence was ultimately as a result of somewhat negligence on your behalf. How do you react to that? Well, it's not quite accurate. I mean, whenever a, a case goes on appeal, there are limited grounds in order to try and get a new trial. Um, one of those is newly discovered evidence. Another is Brady violation where the state withholds exculpatory evidence that might point towards someone's innocence or mitigate their punishment. And another is uh, what's called ineffective assistance of counsel. And it's uh, it's not a negligent standard. It's essentially a recognition that this is a human endeavor and that any attorney may possibly miss something in their representation. And that's why you get, by the way, a different lawyer on appeal instead of uh, the trial lawyer handling the appeal themselves. Most of the time, you know, if, if a lawyer missed something in preparation for the trial or during the trial, they're not likely to, to catch it on appeal. And so you need a set of fresh eyes to do that. And so the job of the post-conviction or appeal lawyer is to examine all of those grounds, possible grounds, and to see whether or not it's possible that the trial attorneys, defense attorneys may have missed something as uh, that could have been of assistance in the defense, either evidence that could have been presented or evidence that was presented by the state, let's say, that it wasn't objected to. But 
beyond that, they have to show it's it's not an easy standard to win um, a new trial on these on ineffective assistance because mm. you also have to show that the the uh, that there was deficient performance and that it was of such a nature that it substantially prejudiced the defense and and basically what that means is that that but for the mistake there would have been a reasonable probability of a different outcome. So you're not really offended by Kathleen Zellner's comments in no. any way. No, because uh, you know I I do about half of my practice is appeals and half of it is trial. So I I'm in the same position that she is in very often and you you know if you're not doing your job if you're not looking at the defense case very carefully. Um and so, you know, she's she's doing her job and ultimately I think she she should get a hearing and and air all this out in court and then let the court decide whether or not it it meets that standard. Um but she's also a big part of her case as as I I think is explained in the latter part of the second season of Making a Murder is very important information that was withheld by the state from the defense. Um involving uh, a report of a computer analysis that showed um, another suspect that we had named as a, as a potential suspect, but the judge would not allow us to tell the jury that this was another suspect because they, the judge said we didn't have a motive for this suspect. Well, it turns out that the state knew all along that this other individual had like an obsessive compulsion of, of surfing very graphic torture porn, um, murder porn, decapitated bodies, um, young women the same age as Teresa Halbach that would really show that you know, the missing motive for anybody. They never had a motive for Stephen Avery to commit the crime. And I hear the state knew all along that this other suspect very well might have had a motive, and yet they withheld, suppressed that evidence from the defense. So that's one of that's what's called a Brady violation. And that, of all the grounds for a new trial, that is the one that is most likely to succeed statistically in, you know, in all, all the cases you look at, because the, uh, the courts do take that very seriously when the state is withholding what's called exculpatory evidence from the defense. So do you still believe in Stephen Avery's innocence? I do. I do. As I said, he, he had no motive. The state's case against him never added up. You know, the, what, what evidence there was was circumstantial evidence against him, but every single bit of it was tainted by, you know, the suspicious nature in, in which it was found, the circumstances in which it was found, or the people who found it, um, who were all Manitowoc County Sheriff's investigators who had supposedly, according to the public was told, that they were not involved in the investigation at all. And here they lied to the public repeatedly, and in fact, did all of the searches themselves and found all the evidence that was used against him at trial. When you add all that up together and, and you know, it's always in my estimation equal an abundance of reasonable doubt. And, and that's really all you can say as a defense attorney is, is there reasonable doubt, but you know, none of us were there whenever this crime did occur. But, you know, from my years of experience, when I look at, at the, the evidence that the state presented against Mr. Avery and I look at all of the questions, unanswered questions they had um, that, that they, the state could not answer and the lack of motive on his part, it does not add, add up to guilt in my estimation or even close to it. Now, Avery has, as 
obviously we have discussed here, long proclaimed that he was framed for the 2005 rape and murder of Teresa Halback, who was 25 at the time. But one thing that is for certain, and I hope you can agree with me on this, that viewers of Making a Murderer, just like, as you pointed out, the jury in the case, never really got the full story. Now, in a recent report in In Touch magazine, legal documents showed that Avery had written menacing letters to his ex-wife and was also accused of assault by more than one woman. What is your reaction to those revelations? Well, the accusations of, of assault um, were never proven. Um, they were, in fact, uh, disproven or uh, declined any kind of prosecution. So, uh, you know, it's easy to make an accusation against somebody when you're a disgruntled uh, girlfriend or whatever it might be. The, the proof is that, that he was never prosecuted, not even charged for any of those. And as to the, the letters to his wife, you know, you have to understand, you have to put yourself in the position of Mr. Avery. He was in prison for 18 years for a crime that we now know to a certainty he was innocent of. And he was, you know, yanked away from his family when he had two twins that were, you know, like a couple of weeks old um, in custody all that time. And his wife, for understandable reasons over the years, um, ultimately found another man that she was interested in and, and she stopped bringing his children to visit and he got angry. And, you know, here it is, his whole family, his life's been ruined. He's locked up in prison for something he didn't do. Now his, his wife and then ex-wife um, is refusing to bring the children for visits. And, you know, he lashed out and made some angry comments. But I think that's a human reaction. It doesn't mean anything more than that. According to a 2006 police report, a family friend accused Avery of forcing himself on her in the early 1980s when she was living with him and his then wife, Laurie. That was deemed to be inadmissible to the trial, as you pointed out, as a lot of other evidence was. Do you not think that if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, and in many instances, these types of things should have been included at trial so the jury got a complete picture of the case and the portrait of who Stephen Avery was? No, because that's why you have rules of evidence, and that's why a judge goes through evidence ahead of time. Um, there were other other claims that were made by inmates that the state tried to get in, and which they claimed that Mr. Avery had confessed to them, and uh, which was preposterous. In one instance, I think they, when the investigation uh, looked into it, the the inmate and Mr. Avery had never even been together in the same prison. Um, so. You have to. You can't let all kinds of prejudicial allegations that are unsubstantiated in uh, against the defendant at trial. The question the jury needs to find is: Is there evidence that the defendant is guilty of the charged offense? To bring in all kinds of other unproven uh, prejudicial comments that, in in the instance you're referring to, were like 20 years earlier never reported until after his he's charged with the offense. You know, that's what judges do is they look at the evidence and they say, look, this is just prejudicial and of so little probative value that is, uh, you know, so little 
proof of whether or not somebody did something in this instance that were going to exclude it from the trial. And so that's what the judge did in this instance and in others. And then in some cases, the judge may look at it's called other acts evidence, other acts that somebody may have done that aren't uh, related to the charge. And in some cases, the judge will allow that kind of evidence, but it has to fit a very particular set of, of rules of evidence in order for that to happen. And in this instance, the judge found that the, none of these, none of this other evidence was even close to being relevant to the question of whether Mr. Avery was guilty of the homicide of Teresa Halbach. A quick one. Have you watched season two? I have. Okay. So the obvious developments here are we have a new defense attorney in Kathleen Zellner, but also in recent weeks, we've had a, a monumental change and one which clearly gives Stephen Avery an opportunity to benefit from effectively a changing of the guard in the Attorney General's office. Now, the midterm election results are in, and Democratic candidates managed to unseat the Republican incumbents who were in key positions, including the top two elected officials, who were most determined to keep Stephen Avery convicted. They are Governor Scott Walker and Attorney General Brad Schimmel, who both lost their respective bids for re-election to their Democratic challenges. What does this mean for Stephen Avery? Well, it's hard to say. It, it could mean um, there the are two different circumstances. So in the one instance, the governor, Governor Walker, had, was very public about from day one, he, was, he would refuse to exercise his state constitutional responsibility to um, consider the pardons of inmates. Um, he was the only governor in the history of Wisconsin to do that. He never even constituted a um, a pardon board that could review applications for pardons or clemencies. Um, and so now that he is gone, there is that option, that possibility, the new governor in all likelihood will, like every other governor for the, you know, to almost 150 years or more of the state's history, um, uh, he will likely create a pardon board that can re could review applications from either Brendan Dassey or Stephen Avery. Um, however, um, I don't represent either one of those individuals at this time, and that would be up to, to their attorneys to decide and to the clients whether or not that's a, a route they even want to try. Um, because it would, you know, they have both maintained their innocence for so long now, and a pardon is usually done when, um, when somebody admits their wrongdoing, but for various reasons. Uh, they've had enough punishment, and the and the governor will grant clemency or you know to reduce their sentence or perhaps pardon them altogether, removing the conviction. Now the attorney general is a different situation. Um, Brad Schimmel was was um, you know ultimately responsible for the fact that that Brendan Dassey was uh, remains in prison because he's the one who chose to appeal mm -hmm. two federal court decisions that had ruled the confession um, coercive and throughout his conviction. So, and I frankly think that that had a factor in his defeat because there was a lot of people who were very upset about that. Um, so he owned that decision and now he is out of office. The new attorney general has, has not made any kind of public commitments on what he would do, but there's a number of things that attorney general could do. He, he could create a review board of outside people who would look through the case and and you know examine the investigation with 
a fresh set of eyes and an independent set of eyes determine if there were mistakes made by the prosecution or if there was evidence withheld by the prosecution that should have been turned over. Um, that's one possibility that might occur now um, that would, would benefit both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. And we're just going to have to wait and see. But it certainly certainly raises some interesting possibilities that were not there when the, both Walker and Schimmel were still in office. And I ask you this, having watched season two, what was the biggest takeaway for you in terms of the new evidence that was uncovered that you think could provide Kathleen Zellner, the new defence attorney, reason to potentially free Stephen Avery on this crime? Well, the most likely route of success, as I indicated before, is a Brady violation where the state deliberately withholds exculpatory evidence from the defense. And towards the end of um, the documentary season two, you see her uh, discovery of that. So they had done a analysis of a computer that was found in the Dassey home. They had a, re a report from their expert um, that the chief investigating detective deliberately did not book it into evidence where the defense would see it as we went through all the evidence, um, kept it in his personal possession. I don't know where, whether he kept it in a you know, shoebox in his bedroom or, or what the heck he did with it. I've never seen that done before. Um, and it wasn't until April of 2018, so just a few months ago, that finally it was discovered and um, Attorney Zellner got a hold of it. Now, the, uh, the the circumstances of that could make all the difference in the world because, as we said in on camera, I'm sure in season one that we thought one of the biggest problems we had in the case was that the jury would say if Stephen Avery didn't didn't kill Teresa Hallmark, then who did? And it was we were really hamstrung, as any defense w would be. Um, by not being allowed to point the finger at a known third party who we who we named to the judge and who we knew had both access and opportunity to have committed the crime and who the state ultimately used as their star witness, knowing all along that he had this kind of graphic, gruesome obsession with with you know torture, murder type pornography. And therefore, could very well have had the motive to commit this crime. Uh, so it's it's really shocking that what what they did here, and that's the thing that's covered at the end of uh, season two. And ultimately, we'll have to see if there's a hearing on it. Um, it the case is in the court of appeals right now, and she's asking that there be, among other things, that. Um, you know, that, that you have a hearing. And then ultimately, of course, she'll have to show that not only was it withheld, but that it, you know, had a reasonable opportunity of a, a different outcome had that information not been withheld. And I, and I think that it, it clearly would have. I think the judge, if the trial judge, I mean, realize this is also withheld from the court. Sure. So that, I mean, this is like a fraud upon the court and, and, and the whole justice system when, when a DA does this. And the same thing, by the way, happened to Stephen Avery in his first wrongful yeah. conviction, when it was when it was found that after he was excluded by the DNA and the DNA hit um, a person by the name of Gregory Allen, it was discovered that the prosecutor had information on this individual Gregory Allen in his 
file all along and never turned it over to the defense. So, you know, th this county has a history of this kind of behavior, and um, it's the sort of thing that I think gives Stephen Avery his best opportunity for a new trial. Um, then if, you know, her investigation is ongoing because of both season one and season two, I know that she has been getting tips from witnesses um, who are coming forward with new information and that that might ultimately also strengthen her evidence of, you know, pointing the finger of guilt at somebody else. And to the extent that she can do that, she said she wants to be able to solve the crime. Um, that's not the standard that's required, though, for a new trial. That's way above what you need to do for a new trial. Um, but obviously, if she gets to the point where she can actually solve the crime and, and you know, find the evidence that, that's strong enough against the real perpetrator, then that certainly would help him, too. I want to end, Jerry, a 2016 letter that Avery wrote and was published in In Touch magazine. He said, Dean and Jerry didn't do no investigation on this case. If they did, I would not be in prison. They would have the suspect if they did their job. Now, there's a difference between Kathleen Zellner framing an appeal and Stephen Avery directly attacking his defence counsels. How do you react to that? You know, again, I, I don't take any personal um, offense by that because the reality is, just like the letters that Stephen had, you know, when he got angry and wrote uh, to his ex-wife, um, he's the guy who's been sitting in prison. You know, he knows he's innocent. Um, from inside prison, he looks out as, and, you know, who's responsible for him being there? Could his lawyers have done anything? So I, you know, I don't blame him for for thinking that, you know, he he d isn't privy to all of the work that we did in the case. He was in custody, unfortunately, throughout the pretrial. Um, you know, I, I'm com confident and comfortable that we did everything we could. We worked as hard as we possibly could to um, get him found not guilty. And, uh, you know, I still believe he's innocent and I still hope that he gets out. And I can understand his anger. Um, you know, if in fact any of the, you know, if in fact a court finds that that we made mistakes, Dean Strang or I made any mistakes that you know that would allow him to get a new trial, then then I'm I'm all in favor of that. Um, like I said, this is this is a human effort. Um, any human can make mistakes. If those if we made mistakes and they're discovered. Uh, then so be it. Um, let's. The person that really matters is the, the defendant, Stephen Avery, and he's the one who needs to get justice. Thank you for joining us on All Rise. Thank you. It was my pleasure and uh, best to you. Okay, these are stories that we will keep on top of. Two very explosive stories on this week's All Rise, Stephen Avery's quest for justice and also that bizarre battle between Casey Kasem's grieving children and his wife, Jeannie Kaysen. It's a story we will continue to follow here on All Rise, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it.